It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Yvette Williams, the courageous and tireless campaigner who co-founded and now leads the Justice for Grentful campaign to bring answers for the victims of the terrible fire in June 2017 in the Grenfell Tower Block in London, which claimed the lives of 72 people. Yvette, we are going to talk about that campaign, but I want to start at the very beginning and I want to talk to you about your life as a young girl. When did you, as a young woman, first get the sense that girls got treated differently to boys and that black girls in particular got treated differently? I think it comes actually from my father. So my father was very active in terms of community activism. Um, And I think he instilled in us something about being independent as women. My mother had married my father for economic reasons she wasn't heavily reliant on him and actually once she was in Britain she became fiercely independent so I think it's a combination of the two so my mum was very into you know you need to learn to do domestic things etc etc and my dad was saying well actually they don't because if they keep their heads down get on with their education etc etc and they'll be able to pay people to come into their domesticity for them so I think it's just a I feel honoured to have grown up in that household because I don't think, there was two girls, one boy, I don't think we were treated differently. And when you went to school, did you feel a difference there? School for me was challenging. I was the last batch or cadre of children to take the 11 plus and go to grammar school and got in. I was one of only four or five black girls who went there, so race was a struggle. I was a very mischievous pupil. Um, can't believe that, yeah. having met you and got to know um, you. Can't believe that at that all. that did me well because it got me thrown out of the cooking and needlework classes and I was put into the woodwork and metalwork classes and was very much a tomboy anyway. So at, at school, I don't think, clearly now looking back, it was just like, well, why were only boys in woodwork and metalwork and the girls having to learn to cook, etc. But, you know, we are talking about the 70s. It probably did open up for me at the time 
you know, why is it that boys do this and why is it that boys do something very different? Because at home, you know, my mum got stuck into the heavy gardening work and things like that. Uh, I'm of the same generation. I studied okay. uh, uh, sewing, laundry and cooking, laundry being a particular favourite. Yes, a full term of studying laundry okay. uh, while the boys did really groovy things. So I know exactly okay. what and you my mean. My dad was the main cook in the house. So the majority of our dinners were done by my father and we preferred his cooking to my <laughs> mum's. So. At this stage of your life, were there role models beyond your parents that made a big difference to you? We were a very kind of open community house, so we had people kind of coming in and out. Um, And my father's best friend, who's my godfather, he lived in Notting Hill, where I live now. And kind of that house was, you know, I remember Stokely Carmichael coming there as a child and just kind of these discussions that I heard around me. And there were actually a lot of prominent women who I now kind of look back on and think, you know, like I saw one last night actually, um, Althea LeConte-Jones, and she had been part of a huge trial called the Mangrove Nine back in the early 70s. And, you know, I've known her from when I was little. You, it's only now that I think, well, this is, she's a powerhouse, do you know what I mean? She's doing her thing and how much the women led that. So I think it's more in hindsight rather than at the time. You take a lot for granted when you're young your normality is what you know and when I look back they were all linked to kind of fairness and justice. You came out of that and you studied you became a primary school teacher but you did move away from education what firstly motivated you to become a teacher and what led you to leave that for a different life? I always enjoyed being around young children and your options on leaving school were like secretarial, childcare, nursing, that kind of thing. Those were the options that were available to us. So I kind of went down the childcare road because I just thought it's easy and I enjoy it. But outside of kind of study and eventually working, I was already involved in community politics. And I think my first leaning towards that was I worked on a I volunteered on a play scheme at a community centre during one of the summer holidays and they had a whole host of other things going on one of the big things at that time was something called Rock Against Racism which was a series of concerts that went up and down the country Birmingham has a good local band at the time you know UB40 was around (laughs) still Pulse So although you're going for the music, you know, in between kind of each act, you get kind of some politics kind of coming through in terms of your thinking. So I was always kind of bobbing in and out of community stuff, even though kind of teaching became my bread and butter. And that community stuff ended up involving you in a whole series of campaigns, Operation Black Vote to get uh, voters out from minority communities and to have them engage in the democratic process. And then there was the Stephen Lawrence campaign, which was about bringing justice to his family, Stephen Lawrence having been murdered as a teenager. Can you tell us about that campaign and what particularly motivated you to get involved with it? Okay, so I would think from about the mid-80s, the National Front started to kind of rise again. They would do demonstrations through areas where minority communities lived. At one point, they even voted in racist councillor in one of the boroughs in the East End of London. 
And for about a year and a half, there were some prominent attacks that were racially motivated. And then the lead up to Stephen, you have another male, young teenager, male teenager down the road, Roland Adams. He's murdered in a racist attack. And then the Stephen Lawrence murder happens. And it brought minority communities to their knees, really, as if to say no more. Alongside that, also, we had a number of huge deaths in custody that were predominantly young black men. One female as well, famous one, Joy Gardner, who was being deported. And they tied her up in yards and yards of tape and she couldn't breathe and she died. So Stephen Lawrence comes at the end of a host of murders and attacks that kind of the community comes to the point where it's just like, no more, this can't happen. One of the catalysts is that Neville Lawrence had recently decorated the home of the Daily Mail editor. And so the Daily Mail, which we, previous to that, you know, we almost boycotted it as kind of minority groups. He was very useful in kind of getting the campaign out there. And the other thing that really catapults that campaign is we get Nelson Mandela to come here in 93. And he gives a famous quote of black lives being cheap here. So the strength of the parents, but also, you know, the ability that the media, the right-wing media in particular, kind of takes it on board and says, this cannot happen, this cannot happen in late 20th century Britain. And the international context that comes in that makes Stephen Lawrence's name global. And for you being involved in that campaign... Did you ever feel personally at risk? I mean, this, you know, there obviously was violence. Stephen was killed. There was that kind of community division. The only time I really felt, oh, should I be doing this, is my name ended up, there was a far-right group called Combat 18, and for some reason my name appeared on their subversive list at one point, and that did make me think, oh, is my own personal safety at risk? But I think you're younger then, you don't think about any consequences at the time, whereas my parents were very clear, you're going to get yourself in trouble, you know, you might want to think about stepping back here, that kind of thing. So they were aware, but at the time I was just like, it's wrong and, you know, we're going to stay strong in this. I was just involved in everything from top to bottom because I just felt it was wrong. Mm. And you ended up working uh, in the criminal justice sector, becoming a policy advisor on equality and diversity for the Crown Mm. Prosecution Service. Can you talk to us about your role there and how difficult that that is? I'm invited to apply for that role following the Stephen Lawrence campaign. So there was an amendment to the Race Relations Act to look at originally writing their racist and religious hate crime policy, prosecution policy, and also doing some community engagement, so getting them to kind of talk to the communities, listen to them. And basically I went in there with a blank canvas to do what I needed to do because they had no idea. One of the first things I did when I went in was get someone in to actually look at their finalised files to see if there was any discrimination in terms of our prosecution. Then kind of did the policies 
um, about what to look for because there was something around the term of institutionalised racism which was about the unwitting things that happen. So we went with that, you know, it wasn't kind of deliberate racism, but there was something in the culture of organisation that especially when they were prosecuting people from minority communities that the outcome of their cases were disproportional. So, you know, lengthier sentences, you know, more likely to be tried in the Crown Court than the Magistrates Court, you know, the makeup of jurors, that kind of thing. Was that done on purpose or was it unwitting? So we needed to get to the bottom of that. There was also the idea about perception in race cases. So if I said, I feel that it was motivated, a crime done to me as a victim, I feel it was racially motivated, that what I said weighed as much as anything else in the law. Because there was something around the Lawrence case where... They felt that Stephen and the friend that was with him on the night, Dwayne Brooks, at the beginning of the investigation, were treated as perpetrators as opposed to victims of the crime. And that was solely because they were young black males. And the stereotype around young black males was that there was a possibility of them being involved in gangs, drugs, the whole stereotypical thing, pimping, that kind of thing. And we needed to shift that perception. So we had the ability to ground that into prosecution policy. Once those two were done, it was then other things had happened. So one thing that stands out is the um, bombing of the Admiral Duncan pub, which was a out gay bar in Soho. And so we could easily look at the issues that had come up for us around race and religion and say, actually, it's happening to the LGBTQ communities as well. And... Do you look back on that work now? How do you balance the successes versus the continuing problems that there are with race and the justice system? And and what did it feel like to be you were still a young woman and you're trying to speak this very uncomfortable truth to power? It was uncomfortable. I went into the civil service at a middle grade and worked kind of a senior grade Whereas the majority of civil servants work, kind of they come in as admin and kind of work their way up. So I was an anomaly in that way. Again, I always say there's something about 99% preparation and then a 1% luck. And that 1% luck for me has always been I have met somebody who I can connect with, who can kind of help my cause. And when I went to the civil service, the current director of public prosecutions was Sir David Colford-Smith. And he was a great mentor to me. So I could tell him in street language where I wanted to go and he could help me put it into civil service speak. Right, right. <laughs> and so I learnt a lot from him. So, you know, I had an ally in a position of power to help me push that through. And that's what I always say about that 1% of pushing things through. Mm. Yeah, those uh, yeah. Fight, finding the right yeah. person. Yeah. You know, the unspoken rules of how to get there. I want to take you now to that incredibly difficult night when the fire started in the Grenfell Tower. You were not a resident in the tower, but you lived, still live, in the neighbourhood. When did you first realise that something so huge and destructive was happening in your community? Well, I get a call from a girlfriend of mine who lives in the what we call the finger blocks. So there's four 
walkways that go directly under the tower. She called me on my um, my mobile phone about half past one in the morning. I just looked at it and thought, girl, I ain't got time to chat to you right about now. But she had my landline number. And when your landline rings in the middle of the night, plus I had a relative in the Caribbean who wasn't well. And I thought that's when those calls always come. So I jumped out picked up the phone and she said, I've been evacuated because, and she called it on the night Moroccan Tower, because that's what it was known as locally, because in the 70s it had a large Moroccan population. So I said to her, no problem, I'll drive down and pick you up. I mean, we're only, say, 800 metres away or whatever. So my daughter was in the house. She was 10 at the time, so I just said to her, look, pop your thing over your hoodie, let's go down and pick up Auntie Beta. As we came round onto the main thoroughfare, I could see, I can see the tower from there. So I could see the fire, but it looked fairly contained to me. But then the police had started blocking off routes. Oh, the other significant thing that night is there is a helicopter hovering for quite a while. But we're used to helicopters hovering because the police are usually looking for someone in the night. Now, if I hear a helicopter, I'm like, what's going on? You know, but at that time, you just thought, oh, it just goes over your head. So we parked the car, got out and walked, called her, found out where she was. She was at the base of the tower. And within, I would say, 15 minutes of us being there, you've just heard this almighty kind of explosion. And that's when you could see the fire kind of going up, up, up. And there's almost like a moment of silence and then screaming. It was months later when somebody questioned me that I realised I didn't hear any fire alarms at all that night. But literally, you stood there just in shock. Because you knew people were in that tower. You could see people at the windows. People said later on they saw people jump. and I didn't see anybody jump, but I could see people in the windows. Lots of people shouting for them to get out. More and more sirens come into the area that we know now are the fire engines coming in people calling saying you know have you seen so and so can't get hold of so and so and I did a Facebook post at 5.17 in the morning because there was it was Ramadan for the Muslim community here and um, some guys coming back in traditional dress from mosque went back and bought crates and crates of water I think about seven o'clock, the nearby church then opened its doors. But there was no presence of authority there. So this was just community? It was just a community, just kind of... Individuals, how can I help? Are people getting out? What's happening? You expect, like, the Red Cross to turn up or something with, like, Mm. you know, silver sheets to put over them or something like... Nothing, nothing was happening. We were just there community for them talking amongst each other people trying to find out have you got so-and-so's number who else lives in there us just kind of just trying to kind of work our way through what's is still kind of almost surreal at the time mm. yeah the sort of thing you might see on a movie but you don't expect yeah to be there in real yeah. life yeah and given you had your daughter with you you must have been very conscious of the need to shield her from the horror of seeing people at windows in a burning tower and they can't get out. Do you know something? I kind of find it hard to forgive myself for keeping her there with me that night. But at the time, I really had no conscious thought. What I look back on now, she stood there and saw adults 
in the community helpless and we really need to keep an eye on that generation that saw that fire on the night and then you know within a couple of days she realizes that she's lost a friend in the fire so but at the time just there was nothing we could do and for the next 60 hours that the Grenfell Tower continued to burn, you were volunteering in one of the many relief centres, you were talking to people about what was happening. At what point in that kind of crisis response did you think to yourself, this is happening, people aren't getting support, and it is because of the nature of the community that lives in this tower. We are being treated differently than if this was happening in a predominantly white, upper-income suburb in London. So I think, for the context, the Royal Borough of Kenston and Chelsea is one of the richest boroughs in England. It had 275 million, I believe, pounds in its reserves at the time. The north of the borough and the south of the borough have always been treated differently. And the lead up to the fire, there had been several complaints and a campaign going in terms of the refurbishment that was happening in Grenfell Tower. So it wasn't a shock when it went up on the night in that kind of sense. There was also an issue around them, what we called kind of a willful neglect, a managed decline of social housing in the borough so they'd run your social house down so much that in the end they'd say oh you know it's not worth us repairing it why don't you go and move to Peterborough in Lincolnshire we've got some really nice properties there so we all were almost saw it as a pattern of ethnic cleansing and they got rid of the play service which was the preschool and after school care for working mothers in particular, and gave it out to private enterprise that almost doubled your childcare bill. And they were also just in the process of closing or selling off the local further education college and our local library. So there's a lead up, a pattern of the north of the borough feeling. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Been really ostracized and almost being treated like peasants, for want of a better word, up there. So the fact that they didn't turn up on the night, you know, we're looking for the authorities, but actually in the back of our minds, we know they don't care for us. And we've now coined the term kind of institutional indifference. So it's They don't hate us, they just don't care. So social housing in terms of keeping... The demographics of the borough is really important. Social housing is a necessity and we've built up communities there. It's a very resilient community anyway. I mean, we have the Nottingham Carnival there where we invite people into our community for two days every year. You know, millions of people come and, and have a good time. You know, we dance in the streets. That's the kind of community that we are. So... When it comes to the fire, the relief centres, the community relief centres set up as they can. And people do what they can do if you can cook, cook. 
name. If you can pack clothes, pack clothes. If you can help people, help people. You know, talk to people, comfort people, you know, find out people's needs. So community, we just literally got on with it. You have to remember, it takes the local authority two or three days before they can even find a definitive list of the tenants in the tower. So for three days, nobody knows who actually lives in the tower. All of the missing posters are going up. You're just like, you know, how can a local authority that's the richest in Britain be running its bureaucracy like this? And you have to say, you have to reach the conclusion that they really just didn't care. And the community that lived in Grenfell Tower at that time, can you describe the the mix, the composition of that community? Who was it that such indifference was being shown towards? Okay, so one of the first things I always say to people is 14 of the households in there, they were homeowners. They had bought their council social housing flats. We've just um, run a campaign called No Deaths in Vine and behind the logo we've put, you know... You've got engineers, you've got architects, teachers, you know, hospital porters, nursery workers. There's a whole raft of people. It's a working community. It's a working community. You know, on the the media was very unhelpful at the beginning because they bought into the stereotypes. So they were saying, well, you know, it went up because people were subletting. You know, everybody's on the welfare. You know, no one speaks English. All the kind of general stereotypes. But actually, the former residents from Grenfell Tower, those that are with us now and those that are no longer with us, are decent, hard-working people who looked after their families. It's the most wonderful community to live in. I mean, my daughter speaks three languages. Do you know what I mean? We holiday all over the world with no hotel bill. So we are who we are. Those people are beautiful, beautiful people. And a lot of friendships have built up post-Grenfell where you can see this kind of tremendous kind of blend and mix going on. And you're just like, actually, that's that's what 21st century communities should look like all over the world. And how did you end up out of this experience being the leader of the Justice for Grenfell campaign. How did uh, that happen? Well, I don't call myself the leader. <laughs> I'm calling you a leader. Um, I call myself the coordinator. Theresa May's Prime Minister at the time, she comes on a first visit and doesn't meet the community. She talks to the emergency services. But then good old Queen Elizabeth and Prince Harry and William, they come down, they meet the community. So it goes out in the media that Miss May maybe or maybe not have made a mistake. So she comes back again to try and meet the community, but it's a little too late. But one of the things she calls for on that day is instilling a public inquiry. And my heckles go up because I know the lessons from Lawrence and I knew the lessons from Hillsborough, who waited nearly 30 years for some kind of justice in terms of an inquiry and getting an outcome. So a friend of mine that lives locally, he's been around for absolutely years, and he's a real powerhouse. He does things like at Speaker's Corner and speaks on a whole host of issues. And he'd done some really brilliant sound bites on like Facebook and Twitter. When I had a moment to sit down, I thought, I must like some of his stuff, otherwise he'll think I'm a hater. 
And I thought, no, don't like them. Just pick up the phone and call him. And we almost rang each other at the same time because he was just like, you know, I've been trying to get hold of you. And I'm just like, no, I'm calling you. He's like, no, I'm calling you. And we kind of had a chat and we just said, look, the divide and rule thing is already going on. Let's just kind of grab something and try and put something together. So we had a meeting with the community. That was the Sunday just got a few community members together and said, look, we need to do something. In between then, there had been um, protests down at the town hall and it looked like it was getting out of hand. People were angry, anger was riding high. And so we decided on the Monday to do a silent walk so we could get the community together just in a space to think that it would be led by survivors and bereaved families who we'd already identified, the local MP, religious leaders, we put them at the front and just kind of have a walk through the area to almost bring a sense of calm but also a sense of unity as well. And it kind of just took off from there. We went on the walk, people were asking us for information. We just kind of went back, moved into Ishmael's basement. He's got a basement flat. And then from then, people just kept turning up. I think people were coming to the area and they'd say, you know, I need help with X, Y or Z. In particular, bereaved families that were coming in who didn't live in the area or didn't live in the country and were coming in from abroad. And there was no kind of written document or anything from the authorities that said, you know, if your relative is missing in the fire or da-da-da, these are the steps you need to take. That hadn't come out yet. So then they started to come down to the basement. People had come into the area and people said, oh, go down to Ishmael's basement, they'll help you down there. <laughs> we were just like, you know, survivors who, some of them had gone, been put in hotels by then but didn't know where to come for, you know, their daily money or how to get a mobile phone or, you know, how they would get their documents back, just things like that. So we just kind of ended up being like almost like frontline service for a while, getting people, solicitors, that kind of thing, just using the networks that we previously had. But you ended up being very much the public face of this campaign. How did that happen and how did you feel about that? Well, I always hated public speaking. I found it difficult. I realise now I probably held myself back a lot in regards to that I was the blocker. But just that because we had the campaign, we be, the press then had somewhere to go for information. And I just needed to do my fair share, really. Moira, who's my campaign colleague, she says, oh, it's because I'm easy on the eye. <laughs> but actually, I prefer writing to TV. Moira does more of the TV. But it was just, it was almost that if not you who moment. Mm. Who's going to speak about this? And I knew I had the information there and I just needed to get it out. It was important that Grenfell stayed in the public psyche. And the response from the public was so huge. The amount of people that came in to volunteer, the amount of donations that came in. Um, you know, we it was really important for us to keep what happened in Grenfell out in the public eye. And for me, it was quickly kind of became apparent that what happened at Grenfell told me everything that was wrong with the society that we lived in, whether it was equality, whether it was austerity, whether it was, you know, how safe, how much our lives matter, you know, deregulation of stuff, do you know what I mean? Outsourcing of public services, do you know what I mean? Where we're just kind of 
the strings are just cut from the state and we're just left to run around loosely and no one keeps us safe, not even in your own home. I was just buoyed up from that. I was, my, my, my anger and passion around it was just like, I will just not let this go. And do you think you initially held yourself back from the public speaking? Do you think as a woman you were self-limiting? You were thinking others should be there at the front, I'll be, you know, that one behind doing the work but not being the public face? A lot of women would, I think, put themselves in that position, the doer rather than the person in the front. And that is exactly what was happening because... um, Although it looked like men had set up the belief centres, it was actually the women in there doing all of the work. I do think it became a gender thing. And I think one of the reasons was that many of the communities, it was the males speaking on their behalf. And when you would speak to some women, they would kind of say, you know, well, I can't. I need you to do this for me. So one of the cases that we had, and this is where the authorities really do fall out, is we know two of the female survivors from the tower were housed in hotel rooms with their husband but had previous reports to the police of domestic violence. So, you know, you have an emergency, but everything that we've worked for in terms of that violence against women agenda that the government has been very supportive of, that falls out. The other thing was female genital mutilation was really high on the agenda at the time. And that lead up in June over the summer period, we would be watching for young girls being taken out of the country or taken out of school to be taken back to kind of countries where FGM was practised. And that went off the agenda Mm. as well. So we had no idea. The girls probably didn't go to school because they lived in the tower, trauma, that kind of thing. But actually we don't know if there's a gap in there where those girls could have been taken out. So big state policy, government policy and legislation falls out because of an emergency and you're just like, well, that can't happen. Mm. And so there were particularly women's stories to to be told. How did the media conduct itself at the time? The media, I think it was quite sensationalised at the beginning, but actually they did come good. They did come good in the end. You know, they brought out the stereotypes. I know um, Jon Snow, who's Channel 4 News presenter, he actually made a public apology in regards to how... He had handled the story previously and that was because he recognised that one of the young women um, that died had won a competition that he had been a judge on. And it was about kind of opening up that humanity. We just want some humanity here. But I think the media, I can't fault them. I think, you know, poor at the beginning, but learnt their lessons and have got better. And they have really been good at keeping the story out there. And you ended up taking the case as to what happened at Grenfell and uh, the lack of support in the aftermath and the lack of continuing support for community. You ended up taking that case to various levels of authority. How do you feel you were reacted to? Do you think there was gender in the reactions that they were looking at you as a woman, as a black woman and, you know, putting the 
the barriers up to hearing what you had to say? I think it's it's always there. I don't know, I've showed you before, you know, a scenario where I meet a government minister who I think at the time just thought, you know, I was a small community person just kind of running around. Luckily, at that meeting, he had somebody in his office, one of his civil servants, who knew that I was the Yvette Williams from the CPS and told him under no certain terms that he should be listening to me. When we left the meeting, we got to the lift, he said, oh, I feel like giving you a hug. Why? And I'm with a bereaved family member who's male. I think he needs the hug a bit more than me. Why haven't you offered him a hug? So kind of it's those boundaries of your gender is the most significant thing that they see and that assumption that, oh, you know, well, she's speaking for grandfather, you know, she's speaking on really traumatised issues, so she she needs the hug. Mm. So, yeah, you do, your front door is your front door. People, you know, they see you, you know that. they, they I think they question us differently to, to men. What do you mean by that, question us differently? They will ask you questions that are gender laden as opposed to sticking to kind of the big political kind of policy issues Mm. how are you as a mother what do you feel about you know the children that kind of thing those questions always kind of crop up as you go along and you just think well you don't interview men like that You've found amazing ways to keep this campaign in people's minds, including recreating a scene from the film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. That film is about a woman who rents three billboards to call attention to her daughter's unsolved rape and murder. Your billboards were there driving around London displaying words like 71 dead and still no arrests, how come? And at Fashion Week, there have been activists and models wearing protest T-shirts with the same words. Do you think all of that is having an impact? I think it certainly does have an impact. And also as well, you need to think of the way that young people engage with kind of justice courses and they don't listen to the news. They don't sit down and listen to political debate all the time. You know, many of them are social media focus you know pop culture is kind of really huge and if you can get them involved in kind of creative things then you get their attention so the billboards got the attention of Stormzy who's the grime rapper in the UK and as a result of that there was a petition out at the time trying to get Theresa May to allow a more diverse panel for the public inquiry and he was asked to retweet that petition and within 24 hours it had got to the 100,000 and more signatures that was required and the majority of those people were young people so they engage in a different way. And have you found justice for Grenfell yet? We haven't found justice for Grenfell. What we've found is we have a great community that's organising so claiming back community assets things like that. We have a greater say in our local authority We are hoping that the issues around social housing, cladding, inflammable cladding on buildings, etc., is really looked at, and that 
those issues around people being safe in their homes is affecting communities up and down the country. So it's helping us to build alliances. It's also helping us to build alliances with other causes like Justice for Grenfell, even Extinction Rebellion, you know, because we had a huge push to get the toxicity and soil tests all tested in the area because we weren't sure if I mean, we were living in you know people started to get kind of health conditions and that kind of stuff We've been able to kind of work with the fire service in regards to you know how their personnel are treated and you know many of them kind of risk their lives on the night broke mm. protocol to go back into the building more times than they should have done to save lives so what does justice look like i think we've still got the inquiry to go through I mean, our ultimate aim is that someone has to be accountable and we don't want it shrouded in corporacy. You know, people write policy. Mm. People in that. This is a people thing. And we want to see people sitting in the dark being accountable for what happened. If one of us had set that building on fire, we'd be sitting down in remand, on remand now. And I think for the bereaved families, that is the only justice they will get. They have to see some prosecutions from it, otherwise the deaths will have been in vain. We always conclude these podcasts by going through a series of set questions which start with a fact. So if I can put the following fact to you and get your reaction. Black women in the UK are more than twice as likely to be arrested as white women in the general population and black women in the UK are 25% more likely than white women to receive a custodial sentence. Your reaction? Yeah, we know. In fact, I find that the figures are lower that you've given because um, we do know that the London female prison, Holloway, they're overrepresented by 50% in there. And I think looking at intersectionality of discrimination is kind of really key. You the know. discrimination of being a woman and being, being a, woman, a black, black man. Worse if you're woman, black, disabled and a lesbian, then do you know I mean? you're not in for a good time here. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with? So I think it would come from within my own community. And I think it's because I am conscious of white male stereotype of black women. But I think there is something in our own community where, and I still think it does come from racism, but I think especially how the black male has been vilified in terms of, I mean, their prison statistics are even worse, police brutality and that. But I think it's broken them to a point where their respect for black women isn't what it should be. You know, how they participate within their families needs a lot of attention. And some of the comments on black female identity, and I think of things like, you know, the rap videos and the lyrics in rap and that, I think I would say the misogyny comes from there more. If for a moment in time you had all of the power in the world, what would you change with that moment? I think for me it has to be wealth distribution. I think it has to be wealth distribution. But I also do think it is about the gender balance. I think if women ran things, the world would be a much better place. And if women owned their power as women, when they do get to positions of power, rather than getting to positions of power and trying to mirror men, I think the world would be a much better place. Virginia Woolf says, you cannot find peace by avoiding life. 
of it yeah. is. I have to go with what my dad always said, and it was stand up for something or you'll fall for anything. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm-hmm.